0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com
1: slash four keys and download your free copy. You think that certain things are important. You stress out about them. Like you get anxious about them. You think like, oh, well, should this blue be this shade or this shade, or should I use this typeface or that typeface? And it's like, it doesn't matter. Like, I've been a designer for 20 years and like I say this knowing that the weight of it, but it's like it takes self-reflection or introspection to think about like what really matters. We put all of this weight on these other things, on these periphery things, because it feels like we can make progress there. It feels like, oh, I can just, I can change the typeface here. I can change the logo or I can hire another designer. I can pick another Squarespace template it feels like those things are moving us forward it's just like when people ask like jk rowlings or stephen king like oh what software did you use to write your book <laughs> right it's like, who the fuck cares like what does that why why yeah
0: why like i used a so, napkin to be honest
1: <laughs> exactly though no, that's not the thing that makes them good yeah it's not
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
2: Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be.
4: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Since
5: 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness.
0: Paul, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thank you, sir. It is so good to talk again.
0: Yeah. So you actually were a guest uh, way back when we were called Blogcast FM. In fact, I think you were one of the last guests we had under the old brand. And that conversation, uh, as I was saying before we hit record here, really resonated with me so much that I have quoted that conversation over and over, uh, over the years. And, uh, you know, huge fan of your work. Uh, but before we get into everything that you're up to, uh, your amazing new book, I want to start by asking what did your parents do for a living and what impact (laughs) did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: Sure. Uh, my dad was a mechanical drafts person, so he drew machinery parts (laughs) for a living. Um, mostly he just whistled and ate chocolate at his drafting board, his drafting desk. He did Mm -hmm. that job, Oh, forever! I think for the entire length of time that I was alive, and he retired, and he he actually did get like the gold watch. Like this mm-hmm. is such another. He's in his eighties now. This is such a different era of how work works. But he had the retirement party in the gold watch. Uh, my mom, up until uh, my sister and I, my sister's a year younger, up until we were probably. 13 or 14 years old she was a stay-at-home mom and after that she worked for a charity and ran the corporate donors program for uh for a big charity um i don't really think i took anything from the way that they worked um and applied it to how i work because i don't think that i think that work has shifted i think Uh that the way work worked 30 40 years ago is different than now so it's cool that they had fairly stable jobs and they, they had jobs that they, that they really enjoyed, but I think my, my path ended up being, uh, slightly enormously different.
0: Yeah. Did your dad from being uh, a mechanical drafts person pass on any lessons in craft and meticulousness? Cause it sounds like something to me that would require a lot of attention to detail. And I imagine maybe unknowingly, you learned some things as a designer from that.
1: Yeah, I mean genetically I think that that I've always been drawn to like shapes and lines and 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 that sort of thing. His handwriting is like it could be a typeface. It is so perfect. <laughs> even now, like he's in his 80s. Yeah. Like he barely writes, but when he write, like when I get an envelope from them, which isn't even very often, it his his writing is a font because uh-huh. every single e is exactly the same every single a every single q and my writing's garbage it's yeah. just it's just garbage i was even working with because i had to like when you publish a book the publisher sends you a bunch of stickers that uh-huh. you sign and that they put in the book because it's cheaper to send stickers than than entire books to me and then back to other people and i showed my wife what my um signature looks like set to sign the books and she's like that's awful. Like, why do such a crappy (laughs) signature? And so her and I worked on it to kind of get like, because she's like, that doesn't look like a good signature. That doesn't look like a signature of an important person. Not an important person. She's like, you need to work on your signature. And so her her and I worked on it a little bit so that the signature for when I was signed, when I have been signing books has been slightly different than Like the one that I sign on the back of checks and that, but I think it does look a bit nicer, to be honest. But writing is just not my style. I'm also left-handed, so whenever I write anything, everything just smudges. Anyways, (laughs) it just it's just not good. It's just not a good scene. That's why I type.
0: Yeah, I can relate. Uh, I mean, I do all of my writing by hand to start with, and, and that's one of the challenges with it is, is that it's just chicken scratch. But I find the process <laughs> of writing my hand to be really meditative. Um, and it just I think it fundamentally changes the way that you write. So yeah. one thing I wonder is you having you know been around parents who've had this very conventional career path. Uh, what advice did they give you about careers? What is the narrative that you were exposed to growing up about work? Because it seems like you seem, uh, have just overcome that narrative
1: completely. Uh, yeah, I have. It's, it's funny. I think that the first 20 years of my life were me, it, I guess, pursuing goals that well-intentioned adults thought was the best course of action for me. So, I did well in high school, and so pe- and I, I was really drawn to computers. I set up the computer labs, I think the final project for that and this was like the first or second year that there was a computer course in school on old. This was the first or second year that there was a computer course in my high school. And my friends and I built a video game that we submitted as the final project. And I don't think the teacher could grade it other than playing the game because he didn't really know programming <laughs> very well. Mm-hmm. And, it, and so I was drawn... So adults at the time, like teachers and my parents and guidance counselors, I guess, were like, well, you should go to university. You do well. You can get into any university pretty much and like get a, get a degree in computer science. And then by doing so, you'll be setting yourself up for... Uh, a great job that you can go and get at any company. My uncle actually worked for IBM for for quite a while. I think he retired when he was 35 though. So they hired him young and then he retired young. But I guess, so I went to university and I was doing that and I figured this isn't fun. Like I love computer programming. I love making things. But instead of doing my assignments, I was making websites because at the time, this was like the mid-90s and at the time the web was just starting and the web was getting graphic Um, not, not graphic, like violent or sexual, but but graphic, like images. Yeah. And I was just spending all my time doing that. I enjoyed it and I loved it. And it's funny, the first, I made a website that was like a precursor to Urban Dictionary. I ended up selling the database. And so it was a slang dictionary. I ended up selling the database from that when I closed it to Urban Dictionary. And I, so it was just like, I think it was called like pseudo dictionary, something like that. And it ended up getting like. ridiculously popular or viral or whatever you want to call it and I was like I was doing like radio talk shows in like 1997 or 98 um talking about a website with like disc jockeys that didn't really understand what the web was it was in Wired magazine and I ended up getting um I ended up getting a job offer because of it And I was so bored at school at the time and I was like maybe I should just go work. And the job offer was pretty good. And I, and I, I remember taught, so I remember two conversations. The first conversation was with the Dean of Computer Science, who was like, I told him I'm going to quit. And he was like, well, two things are going to happen. The first is that you're going to regret quitting. And the second is that you'll be back and you'll be older and you'll be pissed off that you're back and you're older. And I'm like, all right, well, that hindsight will tell. And then the second conversation was with my parents. Like, hey, mom, dad, um, I'm quitting university. Luckily, I was paying for university, so I didn't really feel that obligation to them. They weren't paying for it. I was. But it was still a weird conversation to be like, hey, I'm actually veering from this path that all of these adults have said is the right path. They were, I guess, they, they were cool with it. They were understanding of it, but they were also trepidatious and like, I hope this works out <laughs> kind mm. of thing. And I mean, that was like 20 odd years ago. So it kind of has. And now I don't even know. I don't think they know what I do, man. Like to be honest, I think, I think they understand that I can, that I write because Uh they have my book. My granddad, who is 93 emailed me. Well his wife emailed me cause he didn't know how to use email yesterday saying that they had seen my book in a bookstore. And that was like, that's understandable. But as far as like making courses and, yeah. and software and all of that and blogging and newsletters, they still don't get it, but they're, they've always been accepting of it. And I guess, um, cheering me cheering on me, not failing, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess it's probably the best way to put it.
0: Yeah. Interesting. It, it's funny you say that because I remember the longest time my dad would just tell people that I worked with computers, and I was like, "Dad, I don't work. I use a computer to make you know <laughs> do my work, but other than that, I don't know a damn thing about a computer." So exactly, I'm not tech support. Yeah, exactly. Uh, wow. So r- really interesting stuff. So I I want to uh, you know you kind of have given us a preview of the trajectory that has led you here, and before we get into a company of one, I want to revisit this conversation that you and I had uh, four or five years ago about this whole, I want you to make me a website that looks like, looks like Danielle Porch, because (laughs) that was one of those things that I never forgot so much so that I ended up writing an entire book about that. Why do people do that? Like, and, and particularly, you know, I mean, what is it that they think is going to come from that? And how do you, how do you talk them out of that more importantly?
1: Yeah, I think my favorite, my favorite, um, writing that i've read lately that sticks in my mind like that story stuck in your mind was knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit and wisdom is not putting it on a fruit salad mm. and i think that a lot of people see how like they see this track for success or they see a successful person out in the world and they focus on the wrong things that made them successful like danielle isn't successful because her sight has always looked fucking amazing I mean, I don't even do it anymore and it still looks mm. great. Yeah. Like, but that's the thing that they see. They see like, oh, well, if I just have a site that looks like that, then I can be popular or make revenue or have like a, a, a business that's talked about. And it's not the case. Like her, arguably, and I know this would never happen, but she could have a site that looks like garbage and still do well. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think that's, but I think that people, especially people starting out, and I don't even think it's a, it's not even a knock on them. It's just more, uh, P, like, you don't know what you don't know when you start, right? Like you think that the things are important. You think that certain things are important and and you stress out about them. Like you get anxious about them. You think like, Oh, well, should this blue be this shade or this shade, or should I use this typeface or that typeface? And it's like, it doesn't matter. Like it, it's not like it it can be like I've been a designer for 20 years and like I say this knowing that the weight of it but it's like there are things that are really important in 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 work that we do and there's things that aren't and a lot of times it's easier to focus on the things that aren't important Mm -hmm. because it's hard to think about the things that are it it takes like self-reflection or introspection to to think about like what really matters it we we put all of this weight on these other things, on these periphery things, because it feels like we can make progress there. It feels like, oh, I can just, I can change the typeface here. I can change the logo or I can hire another designer. I can pick another Squarespace template. And it feels like, it feels like those things are moving us forward. And I, I just, it's like procrastination. <laughs> i think and we can't we're no more likely to it's just like when people ask like jk rowlings or stephen king like oh what software did you use to write your book <laughs> right it's like, who the fuck cares like what does that why why yeah why like i used a napkin so, to be honest <laughs> exactly though that's not the thing that makes them good yeah it's not
0: wow Well, let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears and get into, uh, this whole idea of, of a company of one. And I think, you know, I want to frame it by uh, talking about this, what you said in the book, you said society has ingrained into us a very particular idea of what success in business looks like. You work as many hours as possible. And when your business starts to do well, you scale everything up in every direction to this day, this strategy is considered what it takes to be a success in business, solving problems by adding more to the solution. Uh, where does that come from and why did you decide to take a very contrarian viewpoint to this?
1: Yeah, I think that that comes from just the It's funny like we think of business as basically starting at the industrial revolution and it had like commerce has existed for quite a while before that. I feel like businesses and and economies and corporations at at scale Exi- have existed only for a short time one and two only made sense for a short time because things like like the Ford factory or those sorts of things like it was cheaper to make cars on mass there there needed to be high adoption rates for these things to take off and a lot of businesses were like that and i mean some businesses still are but i think that this idea that more is better is wrong first of all and I mean I spent years um looking at research and 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 gaining stories for the book to kind of prove the point that that isn't that that isn't the case but I also think that I think it's just human nature like I think and I talked to Danielle and there's an interview in the book with with Danielle and she's like it's just it's just so understandably human to want to be loved and to want to be valued and to want People to respect your opinions or your business. And like when you think about it, it's like if I go to a dinner party and somebody's like, not what do you do? Because that's fairly easy to answer. Not always. For me, not really, but for a lot of people, it's easy to answer. But if you kind of get into the 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 makings of like, well, what do you do all day? It's like if I tell people like I sit in my home office in my sweatpants at a computer. And is the most boring, like if you watched me do my work, right. you would be bored to tears in about 30 seconds. It's yeah. not exciting. But if I told people like, oh, I, and, but still like I run a business, I run a profitable business, I run a successful business. But if I told people like, oh, I have a, like a thousand employees and 18 offices across seven countries, like that sounds better. Mm-hmm. Like I think the... The envy that we have, and the keeping up with the Joneses that we have in real life, and 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 what drives the the machinery of consumerism, uh, like it follows into business. We kind of keep up with the digital Joneses or the business Joneses, and we see people like Elon Musk and think like, oh, I want to be a business person, so I need to like emulate him. And he works; he believes that you have to work eighty plus hours a week. He has a couch in his office that he sleeps in. I have a couch in my office too, but I use it for naps and Netflix. And he feels like he can't take a vacation because the last two times he took a vacation, his rockets had malfunctions or exploded and he hasn't, in his brain, he hasn't figured out like the difference between correlation and causation. Mm -hmm. But this is like, this is the narrative in in the business world. I was at the dentist the other day and there was a BC, I live in British Columbia, BC. So there's there's a business magazine, BC Business, on the on the table beside the desk in the waiting room and i th- i can't it said growth or grow i think three or four times on the cover alone mm. because we just equate this idea like oh well, more is better and like bigger is better and it's not it's it's not actually the case like there's so, it's just it's just what get t- gets talked about the most but even if we look at any aspect of the news cycle what gets talked about the most isn't always the most logical or isn't always the best or isn't even the the nicest, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially in the news. And so just like looking at the, looking at research and stuff, I just found like there's so many businesses that decide not to grow and end up doing well, or they're, do, they're making so much money that they don't care about getting pressed because it doesn't matter because it's so profitable. And I just think that, uh, so a few points on that. I think first that success is personal. Like if we look to somebody else and want to want to mirror our lives to theirs, we better hope we like what the outcome is. One, if we succeed and if we fail, we better not feel bad at chasing something we probably didn't want in the first place. And the second thing I think is that there's just this tremendous burden, at least for myself, there's this tremendous burden lifted if I stop thinking that I have to change the world or, or build a massive business. Like I'm so adverse to stress and responsibility and the reason I have my own business is because I don't want those things. So I I always just want to try to avoid those things and I like the freedom of having a small business. I like that it doesn't take long to make enough money to be profitable every month. I like that I'm not responsible for the salaries of like 18 people or a thousand people. And if one of their kids is in university and we have to downsize, like all of these stories have played out in my head. Like, Oh, if I hire somebody that might be cool. But then when I think about the obligation of that opportunity, I'm like, Oh, they, they might have a mortgage or they might have like kids in university or, and like, if I have to let them go or business isn't good, like what's going to happen. I just don't want that. Like, I don't want that for myself. A lot of people don't want that for themselves either.
0: For the school teachers and people in our education system, Prime is completely free to help you with this transition to teaching online. We've packed it with a ton of value and actionable content, and we hope you'll check it out. Just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash prime to learn more. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash prime. Wow. Uh, So one of the things you talk about is the traits of resilient people. And you mentioned a couple of different things, you know, one being an acceptance of reality and the second uh, being a, a sense of purpose. But one of the things that I wonder about is resilience in the face of adversity and what separates the people who are and the ones who are not.
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny. Like as the, 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 what you're talking about is this, a study that I, that I mentioned from Dean Becker, who found that resilience is actually the most useful trait if for business success, like more than education, more than training, more than experience, which is good because I have no education. I didn't end up going back to university didn't end up going back to talk to, my, to, my, um, to the dean of the program and say like, ha ha, that, that would be fun. Like in my mind, that would be funny. And I'm sure there's some days when I have thought that would be good, but I haven't actually done that. But I think that resilience is, I think, more than, like, I, I think a lot of people who aren't entrepreneurs think that being an entrepreneur is really risky. And I don't think that it is, or at least I don't think that it has to be, especially the way that I kind of describe how business could work in the book. But I think that, so if risk isn't required, I do think that resilience is because I think that it's so, there's so much of work, there's so much of life even that is unknown. And there's so much that we have no control over. Like we can have the best, like book launch plan and like i don't know if it's going to hit the new york times like nobody does Mm -hmm. like there's so many little things that need to happen for for those sorts of things to happen and i think that just being able to accept that we don't control anything somebody emailed me yesterday and they're like well what do you do about hecklers like online hecklers of your work i'm like i don't it doesn't bother me because i don't care because as soon as i release something into the world it's not mine anymore it's everybody that wants to consume it and that takes, uh, that takes a bit of work and mindset to, to kind of come to that point. But I also think that it, it sets up this resilience because I know that like I, can't, I can only control what I write. I can't control what other people think of my writing. And I especially know that not everybody's going to like it. I, I, but I, I can't control it. I don't want to make people like my writing. Mm-hmm. I just want the people who, sh- who would benefit from it to read it and hopefully enjoy it. And if they don't, that's okay, and I think the other parts of resilience um, are also important, like having a sense of purpose. Because not every day is, is a good day. Even if you work for yourself, even if you have like this wonderful lifestyle business and you're you're doing something that matters, I like some days are garbage. Like some days are just stressful. Some days is just too much. And I think if we have a sense of purpose, we can ride out those bad times. Like we can love the work we do, but not love every single trapping of that work. And then the other thing is just the ability to adapt. Like we just have to kind of roll with the punches a lot of times. And I think this is such a a useful trait to have. And I don't think it's a trait that's ingrained either. I think it's a trait that we can like foster and develop in ourselves because I don't think people are born resilient. I think that they just have to, that, like they have to work at it. They have to work at it like giving up this sense of control they don't even have to be buddhist they can just kind of like work (laughs) they can just kind of work at that and they can work at the ability to adapt and i really think man like it, it like success in the entrepreneurial space however you define it i think more comes down to like the ability to have this resilience the ability to roll with the punches the ability to like fail a whole ton of times and and be able to get back up one more time or the ability to see like oh this thing that i was sure was gonna work isn't Uh uh-huh like how can i move forward how can i um how can i do things how can i make different choices i mean you you've talked to james altucher on the show Is choose yourself book has been uh, is a really good example of that where there's no and even um Oliver Berkman's book The Antidote like there's no if most of the things that that go wrong in our lives aren't going to result in like the worst case scenario like James talked about in his book like you don't really run out of ideas you may have some bad ones but you can have another one if one isn't working. And then, in Berkman's book, the antidote he talks about how most worst case scenarios aren't actually the worst case scenario. Like if your business fails, that's awful, but you could start another one. He's I think he talks about how like the worst case scenario for most people is an embarrassing death, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like dying on stage naked. I don't know how you would end up in that situation, but just like something like that, you can't come back from. Mm-hmm. but if if something isn't working or if you need to pivot or if you tried everything you can and it's not going well like things can change things like life is long man like you you can try different things and we never know going into something if it's going to work at least for anything that matters yeah. like there's no like five tips we can follow to make sure our business is a success
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate this perspective more than you can possibly imagine. I think it's right in line with a piece that I just published today on our blog, as well as on medium. And the title of the piece was when you expect nothing, everything comes to you. And it was largely based on my experience with expectations over the course last year. And, uh, I was watching this documentary, uh, which was about this really brilliant Indian composer named AR Rahman. And, you know, for those of you listening, even if you don't know who AR Rahman is, there's a good chance you've been exposed to his music because he's the guy who created, uh, the soundtracks for movies like Slumdog Millionaire and, and a bunch of others. And his albums have sold more than Britney Spears and Madonna combined. Uh, that's how famous he is. And he said something in that movie, documentary. He said, yeah, when you expect nothing, everything comes to you. And you know, that's such a tough lesson, I think, for creative people and people who do you know, work in the arts to learn. But I kind of decided to experiment with that for a couple of months and see what would happen. And it just it seems like the less I expect from my life, the more it keeps delighting me.
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny. I think that we, we have this, this fascination with goals and we have this idea that like, we need to set these huge audacious goals and they are what move us forward in life or they are what give us the opportunities that, that we need. And I don't know. I just think, I think that that kind of stuff is, is dangerous and scary to me. Like I think most goals are fake. Most goals are just artificial targets that we set for the sake of setting an artificial target. Like, oh, I want my business to make a million dollars this year. It's like, why, (laughs) why do you want that? Why do you need a million dollars? Why not two? Why not 100,000, or like, I want to hit my book to hit the New York Times bestsellers. Like, why do you want that? What are you going to get from that? How do you know what you're going to get from it? Mm-hmm. But I think that the, the, the most messed up thing about these like big goals is that they start out as artificial targets. And then as soon as we set them, they're not artificial in our minds anymore. They function then like they're, they're completely made up for the most part. Like, sometimes you need to set specific goals. Like, I need to make x amount of money to pay my mortgage and feed my kids i'm not talking about those kind of goals i'm talking about the like the the pie in the sky ones but these made-up numbers they function or these made-up things they just function as like unnecessary stress until they're achieved or abandoned Mm -hmm. and like i was listening to an interview with um with the nasty gal founder sophie or sophia Sophia amerosa yeah Yeah. And she was talking about how she had like a year or two into her, her nasty gal business. She was doing so well and venture capitalists came calling and she was like, okay, maybe like she had a profitable business. She's like, okay, maybe. And then they were talking about like goals and they were talking about, well, you have like, I think it was like $24 million um, a year in, in revenue. And so they're like, well, we need. Why don't we go for 120 million dollars of revenue for next year? It's like, why? <laughs> Who pulled this number out of whose ass to, to to come to this? And I think they hit something like 60 million dollars instead, but uh-huh. it was a failure. I'm like, what kind of messed up thing has to happen when 60 million dollars in revenue is like uh, wah wah wah? Yeah. Like, well, we tried. We only made 60 million dollars. And then that kind of created a spiral of like the valuation of her business from the first investors led to not being able to get more investors because the growth wasn't at a rate that they thought it would be, and the company was overvalued. And like she learned a lot. She's probably one of my favorite business people because she's awesome. Yeah. But like, it, and in learning that lesson, like she took a profitable business, like focused on growth, and then had to basically shutter it down. Mm -hmm. And it's like, when we set these goals, even for myself, like when I started work like 20 years ago, I was like, I'll be successful if I make a million dollars a year. And I started working like 16 hour days. And like after a month or two, I was like, why am I doing this again? And there was like no actual reason. Like, why do I need a million dollars? There was no answer to that. I was like, this is like, why? Why am I doing this? Like, this is just this is just bad. And, but that's how, like, that's kind of the way that society works is like, well, we need to like continue to grow, continue for more, continue to consume. And like, there's not very many resources on the planet or in business that are infinite. Right. Like that's kind of why we've fucked our environment up because there aren't infinite <laughs> resources. Mm. And if we look at like unmanaged rapid growth and like anything other than business, Like in biology, that's called cancer and cancer isn't a good thing, right? Like, but this is the way like, oh, this is how business works. This is how capitalism works. This is what we need to do to succeed. And it's like, why? I feel like I'm the guy in the back. I feel like I'm Hans Molman to make like the randomest Simpsons reference. I feel like I'm Hans Molman, like raising my hand. Like for some reason, there's a bunch of adults in a class in an episode of the Simpsons. And he just kept asking questions and they were bad. But I feel like I'm that guy. But the questions aren't bad. They're. Logical, at least to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, uh, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, we, you know you have an entire section in this book about staying small as the end goal, which I think makes a, you know a perfect segue from what we were just talking about. You know, you said that too often businesses forget about their current audience, the people who are already listening, buying, and engaging. These should be the most important people in your business, f- you know, far more so than anyone you wish you were reaching. And I think that really struck me because, uh, you know, people have often asked us, why haven't you guys done a podcasting course? I was like, because we don't know shit about how to market a podcast. Like (laughs) we literally don't, we don't know any tactics. We couldn't teach you anything. The only people who've made us grow are our listeners. Uh, And that's happened very organically over 10 years. Like we've never participated in review exchanges or any of that. But this was such a a reinforcement of that for me, because I I will tell you, there have been times when I did obsess over metrics. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's one of these, questions has been on my mind lately because I'm, you know, working on this book proposal for an idea about success on your own terms and what that looks like. And one of the things that I started to look at is how we measure our lives. Uh, You know, Clayton Christensen wrote an amazing book about this called, you know, how, you know, how will you measure your life? But I wonder in the midst of all this uh, one, you know, how do people serve their existing audience best um, and maintain this idea? And, you know, for you, how do you measure your life now? Uh, like, what are the metrics that determine, you know, your own version of success?
1: Yeah. So for for the audience piece, it's um, like I I've always for my own business focused on retention over acquisition, and in focusing on retention, it's really just like paying attention to them, talking to them, and empathy. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like my business would be awful if. I didn't know my audience. Like I wouldn't know how to run a business that makes any money if I didn't have direct connection to my audience every week. Like my Sunday Dispatches newsletter has been around for six years. I haven't missed a Sunday other than like scheduled breaks when I'm writing a book or or taking a vacation. And that just gives like, I just have a direct access. It doesn't count. Like the newsletter doesn't come from no reply at Paul. It's like, my personal inbox. People are always surprised when I reply. I'm like, "What did you you, you replied to me? Like, what did you think was going to happen?" Mm-hmm. I don't have. I don't employ robots or or personal assistants or anything like that. I'm not important enough for either. But I think that in folk, like the people who, the people who are already part of your audience are the most important people because they're the already the ones who are paying attention. Mm-hmm. Like you've already got their attention. You're already doing something that's that's useful enough for them to stop and listen. Like, I don't understand how they aren't the most important people in every business ever. Mm-hmm. Like, it, just, it boggles my mind that that's not the case. And, I mean, even to bring up Danielle again, just because her interview in the book was, was one of my favorites, um, she talked a lot about how she did focus on, on growth for, for a while as well. Mm-hmm. And then she kind of really scaled back, and she was like, I think her, her, her mantra or her business um, – like mission wasn't was to to spread light in the beginning and mm-hmm. then she was then she it, it had altered and and it updated to like spread light to those who are listening mm-hmm. or to those who are, are who already have a seat at the table yeah. because they've shown up for dinner kind of thing and it just makes so much more sense to to do that because like i know what my audience wants because i talk to them yeah i know what they like or dislike about the products i build because i talk to them Mm-hmm. I have direct conversations with them. I do live Q and A's. We have email exchanges. We talk on Skype sometimes. It just makes so much sense. And then to the point about how I measure um, business success, I guess, in, in my own life, it's, it's freedom. Yeah, Like that's the, that's the metric. And it's such a, it, it feels so like hippie or like just out there, but it feels so pragmatic. Mm -hmm. it feels like such a pragmatic way to think for me because it's like every, every decision I make in my business, I think that every opportunity has like an obligation on the back end of it. It just has like a, it just has like a prettier positioning because it's an opportunity, but really opportunities are, are obligations. Mm -hmm. They just sound nicer. Right. So I'm always thinking about like, how does this impact my freedom? Like is, is saying yes to this going to mean I may have to say no to something that i that I don't want to say no to down the road or is taking this on going to mean that like I'm going to remove options from my life. Like I really like having options. Like I don't like to be in a position where like something has to work or something bad's going to happen Mm -hmm. or I have to take on this project because I bought like a massive house and a bunch of cars and now I need to sustain my lifestyle. Like I want to be comfortable, but I want to have like just enough so that I am comfortable so that I need as little as possible to, to, to like cover my expenses and, and that sort of thing. So I'm always looking for like w- what option, because life, business, whatever you want to say, is, is, just, just, is just like be, us being presented with decisions and having to figure out what the best one is for us. And for me, it's always like, well, what's the outcome of saying yes to this or no to this? And how does it impact my freedom? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how... Like It doesn't always work. No. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a perfect system, but I think that any any rule that's absolute is too abstract to matter. So, I mean, sometimes I'm going to choose a bit less freedom because it might lead to more freedom in the future. But in general, it's like, if this thing leads me towards more freedom or leads me towards more choice, then yeah, that makes, that makes sense to me. I'm going to say yes to that.
0: We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, Well, it, it's so interesting you talk about an existing audience and I, I may have, you know, ran across your your feed. Uh, I published this piece uh, both on our blog and medium about how to build an audience of a thousand true fans in a noisy world, which is, you know, and, and I said this like close to a decade ago, Kevin Kelly wrote about the idea of 1000 mm-hmm. true fans, 1000 people who will support your work, buy everything you create and allow you to earn a living. But as people became internet famous, bloggers became best selling authors and social media platforms quantified every aspect of our humanity. We became obsessed with metrics we started to value hearts over eyeballs and reach over depth and it kind of worked
1: yeah it's it's messed up like if i think about like it's just so weird like if i think about like say my mailing list and i I don't know i think there's like thirty thousand people or something on that and i could be like well that's not enough like james clear's james clear is like maybe five or six or a million like audience members but like If I think about that, like, if I think about, okay, well, let's put all of them in a room. Uh That's a big room. Like, that's a huge, (laughs) I don't know where we're, like, that's all, that's like half of a football state. It was like half of a big football stadium. Yeah. Like, even if I just think about, okay, if my open rate's 50%, I put 15,000 people in a room. Those are the people who are paying attention. Mm Mm-hmm. I would be scared to talk to 15,000 people. Oh. <laughs> I'd be scared to talk to a hundred people. Like that's just, it's just so like when we do start to think about the metrics of that uh-huh. and we take the, the people out of it, it's like, there's people behind keyboards and it like, it, it feels abstract, but it feels less abstract to think about it that way than to think like okay these are just numbers like even if you look at like website traffic yeah it's like oh i got a hundred like unique views today well that's a hundred people like that's awesome even if i think like because the book mostly talks about like enough and defining enough and thinking about enough and it's like if i think about it if i think about the numbers in 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 that regard then it feels a lot better and more human to me because if i think about okay, my audience size right now, my mailing list size right now, it's at a it's at a size where when I send out an email on the weekend, I get I know, 150, 200 um, replies. I'm like, I can deal with that. I can reply to all of them. I can read every single one and answer any questions people have. That gets me to know my audience as super beneficial to me as a creator, but it's also beneficial to me as a business. Mm-hmm. If that grew by 10 times or by 100 times, I don't know how I would deal with the volume and I probably just wouldn't, I probably just wouldn't be able to answer. I wouldn't be able to read them all. I wouldn't be able to answer them. So in growing my audience larger, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense for my business. Like it would probably negatively affect my bottom line <laughs> Like, if I think about it. And so it's just like when we start to think about things in, in that way and start to think about like, well, how many true fans or how much of an audience do I need where, I can pay attention to them almost as much as they're paying attention to me and I can support them and foster relationships with them. Then, then it doesn't like, I don't need more in that case. I don't need to grow to a massive business. I don't need to do like paid acquisition. I don't even know how to do paid acquisition. I don't even have a Facebook account. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know how to do all of these like things to, to grow because they don't, they don't matter to me. And it's just a, it like, it dude, It feels like this is the way business used to work. Like it feels like before the industrial revolution. I'm not a luddite. I think technology really amplifies this, but I think that before all of that, before economies of scale happened, like there were businesses that existed so well, multi generational. They relied on other, or they they relied on other small businesses to operate, and they just worked. And like everybody was taken care of because everybody took part in a, a part of the supply chain, a part of the whole. And it made like a functioning ecosystem of commerce. Mm -hmm. And nowadays we can do that, I think, a little better with technology and communication that we have. But like that way kind of worked like that. That way was 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 not bad. So I think like I'm not saying that we close down every single massive company and go back to that. But I think that not every business has to be massive to succeed. I think that companies like Airbnb, for example, like if they had two properties, mm-hmm. they, they're not really gonna do very well. But like for a business like mine, a business like yours, it doesn't have to be like hundred people, thousand people.
5: Yeah.
1: To 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 give us freedom, to give us revenue, to to give us profit. Like eh. Wow. Uh, I want to go back to, to something you know,
0: that you said earlier in the book, which uh, I feel is, is something that's really kind of amplified in the world that we live in. And in my mind, one of the real downsides of, of what we've done with technology, you said you know, Socrates said that envy is the ulcer of the soul, meaning we can easily become negatively affected by the success of others, who we are and what we actually want to become uh, became overshadowed when we internally compare ourselves to others. We idolize people like Steve jobs, Elon Musk, and Oprah, and think that their path to success, creating massive empires is our own key to happiness and fulfillment. Uh, and that, that really struck me because, uh, you know, we had this guy, Will store here who, you know, many of you listening will have heard who talked about, you know, the fact that we've become self-obsessed and we have no idea what it's doing to us. And the impact of this narrative is incredibly toxic. Uh, and I wonder, uh, you know, how you contend with that. I mean, you just mentioned you don't have a Facebook account. I've been on a 30 day social media hiatus and I've just noticed suddenly that my anxiety is a lot lower. Uh, And I I noticed the less time I I, I spend online, um, I'm not comparing myself to people. I'm not saying, Oh, why did this author hit the New York times bestseller list? And I didn't like, none of that is happening anymore. And I just, I wonder what your experience with that has been.
1: Yeah. I mean, we compare our insides to people's outsides. (laughs) Like that's pretty much what the internet is. Is we see like, perfectly manicured Instagram like that's why I'm not on Instagram either just made me feel bad about myself that like my my hair isn't as nice as a blogger or like my like the view that I have today isn't good or like if I'm not documenting things they don't matter and it's like actually kind of matter more if I'm not documenting them like my wife was always like as because I've always been into photography not even caring about posting on social media but just like photography and she's like why are you spending like 50 minutes trying to take a picture of the sunset? Like the sun is fucking setting. Like (laughs) put your camera down and just look (laughs) at it. How about that? And I mean, it's just so, yeah, it's just, and like just reading studies of like children who are getting depressed. It breaks my heart. Like kids who are getting depressed because they can't build like a YouTube channel to like the size of, of like big YouTubers. And it's just like, that hurt like it's or like pat flynn uh tweeted yesterday i think it was that somebody left like just the, the most awful like i'm not even gonna repeat a comment on his kid's social media on his kid's um youtube channel and i'm like what why like this is this is just bad like i don't and, like it's hard to exist in a in a world like that when there's just so much like it feels like we're, we're putting our self-worth into, we're saying, like, our lives only matter by virtue of, like, how many people are paying attention. Uh-huh. And, like, when we think about it that way, like, it, that, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, that doesn't make sense to, for, as, like, a, a way to measure self-worth. Uh-huh. Like, I, with, how can self-worth be measured in any way by external factors? It's, self, it's self-worth. Like, the, the first word in the term is self. So it's just, it's just hard. And this envy that, that kind of pops up because of these things it, is really hard. And it's like, even just like in business, it's like reading other bloggers, like income reports. Uh-huh. Like, it's cool that they're transparent and I don't necessarily think that they're inherently bad or wrong, yeah. but like most of the income reports I see are people who make six figures a month. <laughs> and it's like, not that many people make six big, I don't make six figures a month. Uh-huh. And it it's just yeah, it becomes it becomes difficult, and I think that I just think that there's this like mind, and it's something to work. It's not something I'm even all that good at. But there's um there's a Sanskrit term called mudita, um, and I'm probably mispronouncing it. But and it's just it's just, and, and I think that that can pot that possibly has the answer to, um, not being envious of others, but finding ways to to find joy in other people's success. It it means to like have joy and uh, appreciation in other people doing well or better. Mm -hmm. And I just think that one, we never know the whole story of anything that we see or anybody that we see online. Like there's lots of people who post like really great picture, a picture of them smiling and they're really depressed or like, we don't see the full story of, of anything or anybody online. But the other thing is it's like, it's not a, it's not a zero sum game. Like if somebody's happy, it doesn't mean somebody else has to be sad. Uh-huh. If somebody is a success in business, it doesn't mean like, oh, that's full. Everybody else fails today. It's like that's not really that's not really how it works. So I think if we if we kind of work at and myself included, work at finding the joy in in seeing other people do well or in seeing other people happy or in seeing other people succeed, then we're we're hopefully a bit less likely to to have that envy that's that that feeds. Thieves all the
0: joys. Yeah. So funny you say that because I, I remember Danielle recently wrote a post on Medium about the fact that 2018 was the hardest year of her life. And I, I remember thinking, I was like, wow, I wouldn't have known that from even seeing her in person when I've had conversations yeah. with her. But, uh, you know, I started writing this post. I don't know what it came. You know, it was one of these crazy morning writing sessions. And I was like, you're not a reality TV star. So why do you live like it? Hmm. Uh, and I'm not done with it. But now you've given me some more fodder for it. Um, yes. Dude, this has been uh amazing as I, I kind of expected it would be. Uh, you know, it's funny because we haven't really talked about the book uh even though we've been that's talking fine. about the ideas in the book the entire time. Uh so uh, yeah, obviously I want to give you a chance to to you know, tell people a little bit about the book where they can find out uh more about it and all that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I dude, I feel like the I feel like the book is and I feel like uh good business books are it's like a philosophy book or a mindset book that's wearing like a business jacket. Yeah. Or like a Or like a nice gray pencil skirt. (laughs) It's more of a philosophy book that talks about business than a business book. And I think that a lot of books um, that are interesting in business are kind of like that. I'm not even saying my book is interesting. I think it is, but who knows? (laughs) And the other thing is, is that I think there there are definitely a lot of business books that focus on like the blueprint or the formula or the answers. Uh Company of One doesn't have a single answer in it it's so funny like even i was talking to my editor and this is like a year and a half 2 years ago when when i was writing the book and he was like well why don't we end every chapter with directives with like things that people can do to make sure that they that they do well and i was thinking about it i'm like maybe and i started to think about it i'm like no I'm like wait there are like how can i tell people what they need to do to succeed if i don't know what success looks like to them so i was like how about they're, how about I make them questions instead? Because like, I don't know the answers, so I can't give people answers. And I can't tell people what the directives are because there aren't any. Like The book has no answers. So instead, we shifted it to, I'm so glad he was like, he signed off on that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just all questions. Like The book is just a, a way to to think about the questions you need to be thinking about to determine what enough is. Uh. In business, you can apply all the things to your life as well. But that's really what Company of One is. And it doesn't literally mean that you operate a one person business. I don't have a one person business. It's just more of a mindset. It's just like Tim Ferris's four hour work week. And it nowhere in it does he argue that you work four hours and stop. Yeah. It's just more of a, a more of a mindset thing. And the book is, I guess, available audio digital, um What's the other one? Physical, yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually printed on Amazon in stores. It's got distribution, so if you want to find it, you can you can find it in cool. most places. Well, I can't
0: recommend the book highly enough, and I Thank have uh, one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or
1: something unmistakable? Yeah, I think that. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think that it's. I think it was Carl Jung who said, um, sounds like such a like <laughs> dumb way to start an answer. What well, was, was psychologist Carl Jung. But he said that the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you are. I think that people are drawn to that. I think that it's really hard, just like how we started the uh this conversation about how it would tell people that they don't want a website that's like Danielle Port's because it's not gonna serve them. Uh-huh. I think that people are like when you are honest and when you are true to who you are and what you want. I think that draws people to you. I think people can, I people can, people are smart. People all have bullshit detectors. People can sense your intentions, whether you want them to or not. So I think that if you, if you operate from this place of like, not what do other people want of me? Like, like we talked about what I did for my first 20 years, but instead of we think about like, what do I actually want? Like what does success look like to me? What does enough look like to me? Hmm. And that's the, that's the place that we share from I think that that, that leads to, to becoming unmistakable. And maybe it's being unmistakable to like five people. And what's wrong with that? Maybe it's a hundred people or a thousand true fans, but like the number at that point doesn't matter because you're making a difference. It's funny. The one one more story. Um, When I was a touring musician ages and ages ago, it was sometimes difficult because we were like, Popular enough to tour, but not popular enough to play like massive stadiums or even like huge bars. And some nights it would be, I I would get a little distraught because there'd be like three people in the bar, and two of them were just the regular like old dudes who went to just the bar every single night. And like it would be, it would be difficult sometimes to like continue. But then like some nights there would be like one or two people there. And I remember one time we were playing a show uh, just north of Vancouver at a. house sound brewery or something. I don't even know if it still exists. And somebody came up to um us after the show and was talking to my wife, who was a singer in that band. And they were like, I just wanted to tell you that like I I was going through a rough time in my life and like I was thinking about ending it. And your music, our music was really, really dark. And, <laughs> and they're like, well it, it, that really helped like that helped me understand things and that helped me kind of think about things in another way. And that helped me kind of get through that. And I'm like, that's the most important thing. Like that's like, t- like changing one person's mind about something is hu- like, it's huge. It doesn't matter if we had like 10 followers on social media or a million, like t- one person kind of taking something that we created and, and making a change that resulted in something better in their life is, is, and is just like so enormous that like that has always stuck with me of like. One person does like reaching one person matters. Being unmistakable to like a single human being is like the biggest thing in the world.
0: Wow. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners. It was a real joy to have you back uh, for a second. Yeah, thanks, time. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything else that you're up to?
1: Uh, the book is called company A one, Google it. Uh, and I am Paul Jarvis. You can Google me as well. My newsletter is called the Sunday dispatches, uh, dot com. That's where I share everything from book ideas three years before I write them, like with company A one and just things that I'm thinking about and talking about things like we've just had a conversation about
0: too. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melina, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes just like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter, and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com
2: slash newsletter. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be.